I'm Eric Ferguson. We live in Mooresville, North Carolina on Lake Norman. My wife and I have been on this lake for 30 years. I was taking the trash out one evening and I've stepped on a copperhead snake. He bit me in my little toe. My foot was starting to turn almost black. When I arrived at Lake Norman Regional Medical Center, the staff was second to none. But when they mixed that anti-venom up, they didn't tell me that that was $20,000 a unit. When we received the bill, we were absolutely shocked. My first reaction was, it's a typo. And my wife said, I certainly hope so, because $89,200 is a large fee for a 19-hour stay at the hospital. That number just seemed totally outrageous. The accounting department of the hospital confirmed that the pharmaceutical charges were $80,000 of that bill. We did some internet research and found out you could buy anti-venom for $750 a unit. The hospital said that they can charge whatever they wanted to. A couple days later, our insurer had negotiated down to $20,000 and we were responsible for a little over $5,000. If we'd have been responsible for the full $89,000, I would have had to bring a legal action against them after I found the facts out of what they were charging. After this whole experience, I can look back and say that our system is broken. The industry needs accountability and transparency. If you're going to a treatment center, you can schedule things and shop around. But if it's something urgent, they can charge as much as they want to. I was overcharged and I believe there's many other people that have been overcharged as well. Welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, my name is Michael Cannon. I'm the Director of Health Policy Studies here at Cato. And we're here to uh, release and discuss uh, what I think is a very important work, a very important book about a very American phenomenon, uh, which is the high rate of uh, spending and overspending in our nation's healthcare sector and all the reasons why that occurs. Um, uh, the name of that book is Overcharged and it is by Cato adjunct scholars David Hyman and Charlie Silver. And uh, those authors and some leading experts about US healthcare policy are going to be discussing that book and, uh, and some of its recommendations. But rather than introduce those folks myself, I will just introduce the, the moderator for our first panel who is Elizabeth Rosenthal, uh, and Elizabeth will introduce our, uh, our other speakers. Elizabeth is, uh, uh, is a physician, is a longtime correspondent for the New York Times where she covered uh, health policy and, and other areas. She is currently the editor-in-chief of Kaiser Health News, which is a news service devoted entirely to, uh, to healthcare news. And she is herself the author of a book about this very American phenomenon. The name of that book is An American Sickness. So with that, I will turn things over to Elizabeth and our panel. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Um, I'm, I'm really glad everyone's here. Um, I want to say a couple of words before we start the panel and then introduce our speakers and then let them rip. Um, so I, I'm really glad to see books on this topic because all of us in this field have been seeing these prices go up and up and the stress it puts on the healthcare system, on patients, on, um, on, our, on our government. So I began thinking about this at the New York Times uh, about five years ago um, after a $12,000 bill for a colonoscopy, um, which, which, was, uh, which included about a $7,000 facility fee. And I was like, what's going on? I had 
trained as a doctor in the 90s, and so this seemed really out of line to me. Um, anyway, I did a, a series at the New York Times called Pain Till It Hurts. We asked for patient stories. We got 20,000 of them. When the series was done, I, I wrote a book um, about some of those stories, um, uh, which you just saw. Um, and in response to that, I got thousands more emails and comments. So then I became editor-in-chief of Kaiser Health News, where we're now with NPR doing a series called Bill of the Month about where we kind of dissect healthcare bills. Um, so uh, this is kind of an obsession for me, so I'm thrilled to be moderating. Um, and part of what I want to do here today is um, whatever we can say uh, about, you know, what people on the ground are saying, and I feel like as a journalist I represent patients, is, you know, help, help. I can't pay this anymore. I can't stand this broken system. I like the care, but I can't stand the way it's working. I can't stand how much it's costing me. So, um, you know, and they look at Capitol Hill and they say, wow, you know, but why is the debate in D.C. always just for, for or against the ACA? It's this binary thing as if, if we just did one or the other, everything would be, you know, hunky-dory, which we all know um, is not the case. So anyway, um, you know, whatever you think of the ACA, um, and uh, I happen to like some things about it, many things about it, um, it solved some problems that people on the ground were having, which was uh, people with pre-existing conditions uh, could get health care. Now, um, you know, and pre-existing conditions by insurers had been dumbed down to include like using an asthma inhaler or uh, taking an antidepressant. Um, so all of us could have pre-existing conditions and be thrown into high-risk pools. Uh, it took away the idea of, of uh, lifetime caps, and it kind of created this notion which kind of probably is why we're all here, that uh, we have to do something about this healthcare system. And it made some good first efforts, but um, there's lots more to be done. So anyway, I think I'm hoping we can focus in the panel on what you found in your book and what lessons you take away. Like, what should we do now? Um, I'm assuming, which is maybe not true, that um, parts of the ACA are here to stay. Maybe, maybe not, who knows, but um, we'll see about that. So uh, I want to talk about next steps because I think reading all of your work, there are certain things we can all agree on that um, drug prices are too high, um, that consolidation, the kind of consolidation we're seeing is not helpful, raise, helps raise prices, um, and that the market is really, really broken. So um, with that, I'm going to introduce our panel and I, I hope to hear some really great ideas. Um, I'm going to start at... at at uh, the far end, and I'm, I'm reading because I know everyone or know of them, but um, I want, to, want you to hear what they want you to hear about them. So David Hyman, uh, who's co-author of Overcharge, is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute and a professor of law of Georgetown University. He's a doctor as well as a lawyer, so um, he sees this from all sides. And uh, um, I will leave that. Skip the rest. Um, I'll skip the rest, okay. <laughs> Um, Andy Slavitt um, was previously acting administrator for the Centers uh, for Medicare and Medicaid Services. When he left that, um, we all were reading his tweets wondering what next, um, and now uh, we know what next. He's board chair of the United States of Care, which I'll let him tell you more about uh, in, a, in a few minutes. Um, and next we have Gail Walensky. Um, she is uh, also um, directed the, the Medicare and Medicaid programs previously, and she's an economist and now is senior fellow at Project Hope. And I'll let her tell you more about 
that where she's coming from. So, David. So thank you, Elizabeth, uh, and uh, thank you to everyone who's in attendance and watching online. Um, and a particular uh, special thank you, not to Microsoft PowerPoint, which can't come up with my first slide, because that's supposed to be an image of this. <laughs> um, and that uh, makes me worry about the things that you're going to see in the rest of the presentation. <laughs> Um, but uh, a, a very particular thank you uh, to Michael Cannon uh, at the Cato Institute, uh, who sort of shepherded this book uh, from the glimmer of an idea more years ago than I'm going to tell you, uh, to the uh, lots of pages and lots of footnotes version um, that is available for purchase outside. Um, and uh, there are excerpts that have been posted online um, and so I wanted to start just by talking a little bit about the organization of the book and this program. Um, part one uh, is uh, about uh, diagnosis or misdiagnosis. One of the things you learn in medical school is if you don't diagnose the problem correctly, it's very difficult to come up with a solution that will actually fix the problem. Uh, and so it's titled Misdiagnosis, the Problems Reform Should Have Fixed. And that's true, in our view, not just of the most recent attempts at reform, but of prior attempts at reform as well. And so there are 14 chapters covering sort of every conceivable market segment within healthcare, starting with pharma, because that's obviously quite visible, but also encompassing hospice, what we call payment-induced epidemics, and surprise medical bills, which are often attributable to going to an out-of-network provider. Uh, so quick poll, how many of you have either received a surprise medical bill or know someone that has received a surprise medical bill? Okay, so if you look around the room, you get a sense that this is a pervasive problem. Um, and it's somewhat peculiar, as I'll talk about later, because it's unique to healthcare. We don't see surprise medical bills in the markets for other products and services, and so it's useful to ask yourself, gee, why is, why is healthcare different? Um, and then the second part, uh, which will also be the focus of the second panel, uh, is about uh, why we think reform has failed and what will succeed. Uh, and so there are eight chapters that track much of the analysis of the first part of the book, uh, and we talk about what we think are some of the solutions. My suspicion, uh, I actually have two suspicions. One is that I think there'll be fairly broad agreement on the subjects we cover in part one, that there are in fact real problems uh, that are not, have not been fixed by prior reforms, uh, and that uh, there'll be considerably less agreement on part two because uh, people often have very different visions about what they think the healthcare system should do, how it should be financed, what the role of government is uh, versus private individuals, and that's without even getting into the state versus local. So that's my first uh, expectation. My second is that although this panel is supposed to focus on part one, we will inevitably slop over and start talking about part two. Uh, because that's often what people want to talk about. Um, so a few of the problems with our healthcare system, this is just a brief excerpt from page 273, um, and I'm not going to read it because I hate people who read their PowerPoint slides to you when you're perfectly capable of doing it, uh, but it basically, again, canvases a range of problems in the market for healthcare that the preceding chapters go through and talk about uh, why these things actually occur. Um, so again, PowerPoint uh, betraying me, but just imagine where that big X is, the face of Martin Shkreli, 
the most punchable face in America, as it was described. Um, he uh, raised the price of Daraprim from uh, $13 a pill to $750 a pill, um, and he delighted in trolling his critics. He became the face of pharmaceutical greed. Uh, he ends up getting arrested and convicted of securities fraud. Uh, in the scheme of things, Daraprim, there are about under 10,000 prescriptions per year. Uh, so this is not uh, you know, the major driver of pharmaceutical spending, but it's an exemplar of what's in fact a broader set of problems. And Shkreli played an established game. Uh, we've listed here uh, both generic and branded drugs, showing you some pretty dramatic price increases. Generics account for a majority, a sizable majority of filled prescriptions, but a much smaller percentage of total spending. Um, but when you start bumping prices for things that have long been off patent up by, you know, 6,300%, that's a pretty striking price increases. And we don't see those things in other markets either. Uh, branded, this is an excerpt from an OIG report that came out uh, the beginning of this week. Uh, and it points out that, you know, we're basically spending a lot more on branded drugs, which started a higher price point to begin with. There's also been changes in the composition of spending. So the launch prices for Part D drugs have gone up pretty dramatically as well. Um, we also see other kinds of pharmaceutical games. This is an exhibit in a case that was brought uh, against Walgreens. Um, Walgreens, along with some consultants and a drug company, figured out that the federal government capped the amount uh, that was going to be spent on tablets of ranitidine. Uh, that's Zantac, for those of you who uh, know that, that name. Um, but there was no cap uh, if you uh, dispensed capsules of the exact same pharmaceutical, right? The only difference was the way in which it was packaged. Uh, and so they started aggressively basically switching people from the prescription drug version where the amount they could receive was capped to a much more open-ended reimbursement. Um, and basically one falls off a cliff and the other skyrockets. That's worth about $75 million a year to Walgreens was the estimate of damages in the civil complaint. Uh, and they kept doing that right up until a whistleblower filed a complaint and then they switched back. All right. Now, the patients got exactly the same drug, just in a different form, but the cost to the program went through the roof. This is the kind of pharma games that you see. Uh, if you look more broadly, you see fraud, waste, and abuse in the healthcare system everywhere you look, in every sector of the market. Um, some of it involving, you know, uh, well-regarded, well-credentialed, fancy people um, who went to fancy medical schools. Uh, and some of it involving considerably less savory people, but we sort of have a list here, starting with drug companies, hospices, doctors, ambulance services, mental health clinics, nurses, hospitals, DME providers, dialysis clinics, even patients get involved in some of these things. And then finally, the mob, right? And people are looking at this, wait a minute, that, that's, that's kind of an outlier, what's going on there? Well, uh, Louis Free testified back in 1995 uh, when we were considering health reform, 
our earlier iterations. Uh, and he, he basically stated that our intelligence indicates that cocaine distributors are moving from Medicare, uh, from cocaine into Medicare because, quote, the profits are greater, the chances of detection is slimmer, and the penalties are minor. So that ought to trouble you on multiple levels, right? You don't have to be uh, an enthusiast of getting rid of the war on drugs to think substituting into healthcare fraud is probably not an improvement. <laughs> Um, and again, uh, I'm not going to comment on the bad pictures from now on. Uh, a couple of bad doctors that are featured in the book. So Jacques Roy uh, was a primary care doctor uh, who decided that he could make a lot more money running a home health care certification mill by signing pieces of paper that say this patient is entitled to home health care, um, getting kickbacks from the home health care agencies who then build Medicare to the tune of $375 million over a six-year period. Um, he certified 11,000 patients over six years, 5,000 in a single year. The average for the bottom 99% of physicians in the United States for certifications was under 100. So he stuck out like a sore thumb, but he kept doing it partly because our system is set up to seamlessly and efficiently pay bills as quickly and as cheaply as possible. We've gotten better at error detection, but we still see lots of these cases. And somewhat troubling, he was suspended in 2011, but just changed the name under which he was billing and kept doing it. Finally ends up convicted in 2016. Dr. Melgan, finally we get a picture of the guy from Florida who conspires with the senator from New Jersey. At least that was what the Department of Justice thought. He was paid $135 million by Medicare um, for dispensing a drug called Lucentis, um, quadruple billing for some of it, and at least the Department of Justice believed, treating lots of people who didn't actually need the treatment, but the Medicare program mostly just paid the bills. They did wise up at some point, and they tried to go after him for $9 million that they wanted back, at which point Dr. Melgan decided that campaign contributions would be an effective strategy for protecting the money that he had received. And so Senator Menendez uh, went to bat for him, including a staffer who called up someone at CMS, the agency that two of the co-panelists uh, used uh, to head. Um, and I actually, I should say right now, I really appreciate the co-panelists for participating as well. I left them off of the uh, list of appreciation at the beginning, but that's not because I don't appreciate them. Uh, but one of the staffers from the United States Senate told someone at CMS, quote, bad medicine is not illegal. Medicare should pay these claims. So think about that. One federal employee is telling another federal employee, I agree that it's bad medicine, but you should just pay it. That's the way the system is set up to pay these bills. Now, Senator Dr. Melgan ends up convicted. Uh, Senator Menendez is tried. There's a mistrial, and then the Department of Justice drops the charges. But this, again, is an, another indication of the kinds of funny business that can go on uh, in the healthcare system. And uh, this uh, is not going to show at all, uh, but that does. So out of network, out of luck, you, you saw an example uh, in the, the initial video of what can happen uh, to someone who's uh, facing very high bills. Uh, the good news is if you're insured and you're in network, your insurance company will knock the bill down quite dramatically and then you're suddenly talking about the real charges. But if you go to an out of network facility, you often don't have any coverage whatsoever and the 
out-of-network providers are free to bill you at a very high rate that bears no resemblance to the amount of money they would actually collect from anybody else. The obvious question is, why does this happen? The picture that you couldn't see was the auto body shop in Champaign-Urbana, where I took my car after I scraped it against a pillar. Um, they told me a price up front. When I picked up the car, that was the price I paid. Three weeks later, the guy who painted the fender didn't send me an out-of-network bill. Right? The auto body shop had basically upfront package pricing, and they would have fired anybody who would have tried to send a bill. Whereas in healthcare, we're used to people doing this, uh, and we see lots of specialties where hospitals bring some people in house and they're billed as part of the hospital, but other people bill independently. Um, so hospitals and doctors are jointly conspiring against insurance companies and patients to charge them money and try and recoup them. This is a figure uh, from a really nice paper by Cooper et al. Uh, that came out uh, just about a year ago. And what they did is they looked at the rate of out-of-network bills when various hospitals switched from one mechanism for staffing their emergency department to hiring a particular company. And what you see is it's like switching on a light bulb. Right? If you opt for this particular emergency department staffing company, their business model basically is we're not going to be in network. We're going to send you an out-of-network bill, and we'll capture as much of that as we can. And the hospital has some incentive to do that because it turns out the intensity of services goes up, and they can bill for more things. So that's why I said this is basically hospitals and doctors that are uh, conspiring with one another against the interests uh, certainly of the patients. So um, just one more example, um, payment-induced epidemics. The book has a chapter about that, just like it has chapters about out-of-network and everything else I've talked about. Um, this is a picture of famine in Africa. The result is a disease called kwashiorkor. It's a protein deficiency disease. It's a horrible disease. The good news is it's basically unknown in the United States of America. But if you looked only at billing records, you would think there was a serious problem with Kwashiorkor, at least at certain hospitals in California. The, this is comparing the billing rates per million, I'm sorry, per thousand Medicare patients at all California hospitals and at hospitals run by an, an organization called Prime Hospitals. And Kwashiorkor is the far one on the right. Uh, if you look, the very last bar is basically close to zero. There's almost no kwashiorkor at non-prime hospitals, <laughs> but there's a very high rate at prime hospitals. Why? Because if you add this as a secondary condition, you can juice the amount of money that the Medicare program will pay. And that applies to all of the other things on here as well. But in a environment in which you set bills based on the paperwork, you can create epidemics by paying more money if people add secondary diagnoses. You can also cure them depending upon how you structure the billing rules. So one of the examples that's talked about in the book is pneumonia. Uh, it looked for a while like we were having huge success in preventing deaths from pneumonia. And then somebody went back and looked and discovered, no, they're just recoding a chunk of them as sepsis with a secondary condition of pneumonia. If you add those two together, the total death rate from pneumonia is basically the same as is the frequency of pneumonia. So billing can cause epidemics. It can also cure them depending upon the way the rules are structured. So let me just wrap up so we can get to the discussion. <clears throat> the book identifies five big problems that we think are characteristic of the healthcare market, but not of other markets. 
Uh, high prices, opaque prices, highly variable quality, although everybody thinks that we live in Lake Wobegon, right? The other doctors may be bad, but my doctor is uh, uh, definitely above average. <clears throat> I went to medical school. Half of the doctors are below average, right? It, it's, that's true of lawyers too and law professors and everyone else. But um, fourth, uh, and perhaps more controversially, we think that political control of healthcare spending is an important driver of the way the system looks, the way the system works, and the limitations on our ability to fix it. Um, and then finally, third-party payment, we actually think is not a solution to our problems, but at least in its current form, with open-ended reimbursement, is an important driver of our problems. So uh, we are being overcharged, and I've just added uh, a couple of examples from uh, Warren Buffett, uh, David Walker, the former comptroller of the United States, Normally, accountants don't use words like um, fiscal cancer or fiscal irresponsibility. Um, uh, Uwe Reinhardt co-authored a paper called It's the Price is Stupid. We thought about naming the book that, but it had already been taken. And then finally, <clears throat> the former head of uh, CMS who held the job in between Gail and Andy uh, uh, cashing out, I think, an observation that's quite common to many uh, scholars in this field that 20 to 30 percent of healthcare spending in a subsequent paper in JAMA, their central estimate was 34 uh, percent, yields no benefits to patients. Some of that's waste, some of that's fraud, some of that's abuse, some of that are things that we just don't have good evidence to indicate that we ought to be doing it. Um, name me any other sector of the economy, particularly one as large and as quick growing as healthcare, where you see that. So four lessons, uh, our healthcare system is full of good people. This is not an attack on the people that are working in the system except for the fraudsters like the people that I highlighted. Um, but good people can't save a bad system. Incentives drive behavior. If we don't like the behavior, we should change the incentives. Uh, second, our claim is that because we think politics is an important impediment rather than a solution, uh, the book is really about things that don't require political action, with the important exception of our chapter on drug pricing. Uh, some of the things we recommend there will require legislative action. Uh, but we think market entry and people spending their own money uh, are gonna be important drivers of working our way out of the hole we've dug ourselves into. Uh, third, if you've got a cozy local market cartel, you shouldn't just be a passive bill payer. You should find somebody else to provide the services. That includes leaving your local geographic area or threatening to leave. Both of those can be effective. So to beat them, leave them. Uh, and finally, we think that, uh, again, third-party open-ended reimbursement is an important driver of the problem. And we think we will get a better healthcare system and better health if we rely more heavily on self-pay. Not exclusively, the book doesn't say we shouldn't have any insurance, and it actually identifies the circumstances under where we think insurance is important. Um, so in closing, let me just show you one of my favorite cartoons about the problem. Uh, so this is the patient in the doctor's office, and if, for those who can't read the caption in the back, it says, well, it's not a cure, it does mean a guaranteed income for me. For too long, we've had a healthcare system that operates on that basis and it's time to call a halt to it and realize we're all being overcharged. Thank you very much. Thanks, David. Um, there's a lot to talk about there, so um, 
Andy, do you want sure. to yeah. start by Start with congratulations on the book. Thank you. Literally sitting down and writing a book feels like, given my attention span, an amazing feat in and of itself. But also um, what, what appears to be a lot of good common sense things that I think Americans uh, can relate to. Uh, and you know, even if we won't all agree on solutions, um, you know, you're starting an important dialogue. So, so thanks for that. Um, let me just spend a second on um, United States of Care, which is a, a new organization that um, I've helped found uh, and am the board chair of. Uh, it's a nonpartisan, it was founded by a nonpartisan group of people, about 60 people, including, uh, including Gail to my left and, and many other people throughout healthcare, public health, former folks from uh, the Democratic Republican side, um, uh, well known people, uh, to who really, I think, with a couple of important messages that said, in case we think, um, that maybe there's a better answer than letting whichever party has 51 votes dictate our healthcare system. And if we don't think that that's a good long-term solution, and we want some more stability, let's start to work on some consensus points that actually the American public believes and that all of us believe, and then we can figure out how to build that into a consensus that we can all agree on based on facts and based on investing time and effort and energy uh, and seeing what really works. Um, and so there's really three principles that drive that effort. And I think the three principles shared by about 80% of Americans, uh, about 75% of Republicans, 85% of Democrats, roughly. One is that uh, we believe every American should have access to a regular source of care, i.e. not the emergency room, but, uh, but a regular source of care so they can get out ahead of the things that are causing them to be sick and causing them to go to hospital and, and, and to reinvest in, in primary care, behavioral health, all the important things that American families need. Second, that Americans shouldn't have to choose between healthcare expenses and other expenses in their lives. And third, that we, if we're going to accomplish this, in a, we have to do it in a sustainable way, meaning sustainable politically and sustainable economically. And that means um, fundamentally having the conversations about how to pay for what we need and what we're gonna use and how to make the system long-term healthy. And so you can't avoid costs. And so whether you're whether you're a liberal or you're a conservative, costs are your enemy, right? No matter what you want to accomplish. If you want to tame the budget or if you want to expand coverage, um, you can't get there without taking these issues head on. But more importantly, if you're, if you're just an ordinary, hardworking person who wants to take care of their family, um, these costs um, create what uh, one, a former prime minister of Australia described to me as kind of a low level of constant panic that hits many American families, whether they're insured or not insured, a high deductible, um, a drug that they can't afford. So let me just hit on uh, kind of three of the basic areas to describe what I think is going on that I think will help prompt some of the discussion. And it just, just tour three places where Americans have interactions. The first being the pharmacy, right? So, so, so drug costs, you know, since, since January 20th, 2017, over 2,000 drugs have gone up by double digits. And we now know from an OIG report that, um, that, that they went up even counting for the rebates underneath them um, by, by a, at least a very close approximate amount. And there are several hundred drugs that have gone up by triple digits. We're talking about a little over a year's time. Um, if an, if an American with uh, diabetes is going to go buy insulin in the U.S., they're going to pay about 10 times what the British government pays for the exact same drug. 
So 10, we're not talking about, we're not talking about you know, 10, 20 percent, 30 percent. And we're not talking about, by the way, a drug that has been, that has changed at all since the late 90s. We're talking about drugs that march up their price in order to meet a revenue target. And so it's not surprising, uh, although it's astounding, that one in four Americans say that they have trouble affording their medications. Remember, 30% plus of Americans are on four or more prescriptions. Now that in itself is a whole other topic, right? You, you could argue that we should be talking about that instead of this, but, but I think you gotta talk about both. So, you know, I, I, conversation I had with the pharmaceutical industry at the end of the Obama administration was, it won't matter who comes next. It won't matter if it's a Democratic administration or Republican administration. They will not have a choice but to deal with this issue. And if they choose not to, by the middle of the 2020s, um, this will be crippling the nation. It's already crippling states. I mean, I've talked, I talked to so many state governors who saw drug costs go from 10, 12% of their Medicaid budget to about 20% of their Medicaid budget. And that crowds out all kinds of other investment opportunity, including investments that we all care about, early childhood, foster care, things that, things that are just fundamental. Um, so that's, that's what's happening in the, in the, in the farm space. You know, secondly, in hospitals, um, we're captives. We're captives. So uh, to some extent, um, while, while all of us would love to believe that a, a free market and transparency and information will, will bring prices down, the fact is we've, we've got so much regional consolidation now. And we're also captives emotionally. Uh, talk to someone who's got a sick child or a sick spouse, uh, or let alone uh, with, with a late-stage cancer, and uh, you, you think very differently about how you want to consume expenses. But we're, we're captive. We're captives when the ambulance shows up. We can't pick the ambulance. And so it's, it's almost as if the fire department could charge us whatever they wanted to for coming to our home and putting out a fire. Um, we, we, you know, we allow this to happen, and we, we, while we manage some prices where we, where we don't, um, those prices tend to, tend to show up extraordinarily, and they tend to hit people with lower incomes who don't have insurance or have high deductibles hard, and they tend to hit higher income folks um, very little or to not at all, and that's why I think we have less urgency as a country uh, to do this. But I, you know, as evidence of something that I think David put up, one question that I ask almost every hospital CEO that I have a conversation with, and I've done this probably now dozens of times, and you should try this next time you talk to a hospital CEO, is if you were fully capitated and to explain what that is, if you got one payment every month based upon the number of people in the community of a certain dollar amount, if, if you could have that, instead of getting billing for the services you provide, what percentage of your costs could you take out? And, and I ask for kind of a quick rough number off people's, the top of people's head. I have never in my life heard a number less than 15%. I often hear numbers like a third or 20 to 25%. And it's a lot of simple stuff. There's just a lot of things people wouldn't do in the hospital. You know, they just take care of people at home. They take care of people in more comfortable settings. They do take care of people in community clinics. You can bill five, six, seven, eight X, which you can bill when, when someone's admitted to a hospital. So people know what to do. Those costs are there. I think that's consistent with what, with what you put up. Third, the, the third thing I'll say, just to close this off, is uh, we've chosen this course. <laughs> I believe we have absolutely chosen this course. We've refused to make tough decisions because we know what tough decisions there are to make here. We've just talked about some of them. And what we've done instead is said, let's make healthcare unaffordable 
to all but incredibly wealthy people, and then let's subsidize that care through tax subsidies to, to employers, through Medicaid and Medicare, to uh, ACA subsidies if you make under $100,000. And of course, there, there's one set of people, only one set of people that are exposed that don't get that subsidy, and those are people who make over $100,000 that buy insurance on their own. And, and they're left out in the cold. They're the people that are actually paying um, these ridiculous costs that we've sort of self-imposed on ourselves. But again, we choose, we've chosen this course. We've chosen not to deal with pharmaceutical costs. We've chosen not to deal with um, how we pay for care in hospitals. And, and I'll say one final thing about the hospital costs. We have a very ambivalent relationship about healthcare costs in the following way. Hospital costs are 80% labor. And we have this love-hate relationship because we're addicted to the job growth in hospitals, particularly in smaller communities, um, particularly in rural communities. So unless we're willing to address that, it's going to be hard for us to address the cost issue. I'll leave it there. Yes, thank you. Um, I found it very interesting that there is widespread agreement on the basic nature of the problems uh, that come from people who have otherwise very different orientations about the role of government and how they think these problems uh, can be resolved. I ultimately, We've got to have more focus on that uh, because the nature of the problems lead to a set of options, but not all the options we might otherwise like to have. Um, I'm going to mention a couple of, of what these issues are that either complicate this uh, or that when we do start discussing solutions, we're going to have to address uh, uh, much more directly. One, uh, and this is one of my concerns uh, about some of the solutions offered in the book, uh, I have no problem, which I've told both of the authors, about their discussion of the problems. I, I think there will be widespread uh, agreement about that. Um, one of the issues that I didn't think uh, has attention and is a factor about healthcare that complicates almost all proposed solutions is that healthcare spending tends to be very concentrated. So at any one year, most people don't spend very much money on healthcare. The bottom 50% of the spenders account for 3% of the healthcare spend. The top 5% is where all the action is. And what this means is that unlike most areas, there's a very small group of individuals who are going to blow through any threshold you put out as to what would be a way to get their attention, income-related deductibles, just regular deductibles, deductibles paired with uh, health savings accounts, all of which I think are just fine ideas to get people used to thinking about the different prices that are currently being charged for different healthcare services. But at the end of the day, the big spending goes on. The very small group of people who either have a major accident or who have some kind of catastrophic medical events uh, going on that cause them uh, to uh, be in that very high spending. Their response 
as individuals is very hard to influence. The incentives of the people providing services to them, the physicians, other clinicians, the hospitals, they, of course, uh, might be uh, able to uh, be reached with better incentives than now exist. And I think there is increasingly, if not uniform agreement, very widespread agreement, that our fee-for-service reimbursement system, which is typically used uh, by both public and private insurers, uh, encourages more uh, and more complex activities to be provided rather than focusing on healthcare. And uh, the example that Andy raised about uh, if you had a fixed amount of money coming in uh, to cover the healthcare needs of either an individual that you're responsible for, community of individuals you're responsible for, uh, you would tend to behave in a, a very different way. So it's something that you can be dealt with, but it's a fact of life that you get a very small number of people accounting for most of the healthcare spending. What happens to them, how they're treated, is what's going to determine in any one year what a lot of healthcare spending looks like. Uh, and we're not comfortable in most cases putting strong limits in place, either for the individual or for the institution that is providing care for that indiv individual uh, that can't be um, broken. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion, and, and I, I, one of the concerns I had in, uh, about the book, I, it's not completely uh, a fair criticism, but f waste, fraud, and abuse is one thing. Higher spending, because we like easy access to new technologies, even if it's not clear they actually provide better services, but they are newer and have some aspects about them that might be uh, appealing, that we pay all of the labor involved in providing healthcare services, the nurses, the physicians, the hospital administrators. Everybody in this country that is in the business of providing services gets paid way more than in other countries, in addition to paying for things at higher rates, uh, like pharmaceuticals, uh, and um, devices, et cetera. But it's much more pervasive. Everything uh, in, involved in healthcare in the United States uh, runs at a much higher price. And it means if you're really serious about pushing down spending, you're going to have to go after all of them. And oh, by the way, labor is the dominant one. And that's not usually who we think about. So it just is, remember, it's easy to point to the relatively uh, high absorbent, exorbitant prices in pharmaceuticals. But pharmaceutical spending is roughly 10 cents on the dollar in healthcare in the aggregate, little more depending on how you want to calculate it. Uh, but it just, you need to put that in uh, perspective. A couple questions about that will go, they're indirectly answers to why don't we do something about it, which is raised in the book. Well, Medicare, is not nearly as good or aggressive in going after fraud and uh, other types of billing error as the private sector. M most of the time, it seems to me, now that I've left the agency, that when you have a Medicare fraud discovered, it's because somebody at the Wall Street Journal took this on as a case, and it comes out uh, above the crease on the front page and spurs an investigation. 
Um, a little frustrating. But I had asked, why was it that the agency wasn't directed to focus on the 10% high providers, institutions and physicians in Medicare, to do a special review to see whether or not fraud was involved in addition. Because occasionally, we stumble on people uh, who uh, bill for like thousands and thousands of hours of physical therapy being provided by one physical therapist, or other equally ridiculous uh, charges. Uh, and the answer I got back is uh, Congress would regard that as harassment of the people who are being asked to provide services to seniors. So tread lightly when you think about doing uh, in activities like that. Or I had my wallet stolen uh, a few years ago, um, right after the New Year's. I was in my office on a Saturday and I got an email fraud alert from American Express saying, we've shut down your card. We think there is fraudulent activity going on. I didn't even realize my wallet was gone. I went to get the card out and realized I didn't have my wallet with me. It turned out that, with as best I can tell, within about an hour and a half, Visa and American Express had shut down my card because some very experienced thieves had gotten a hold of these cards, had rung up $1,000 in electronics at each of three places on each of a couple of cards. And that was such an obvious pattern by both what was purchased, the amount, and where it was purchased, that the credit card companies knew immediately this was not me and were right. Why can't we do that in Medicare? And it's because we really don't have a real-time system that allows us to have the same kind of access in Medicare. So I, I see Elizabeth uh, looking at her client. Yeah, this one. Yeah. I'm not a good time. Keeper, so I there are strategies that can be done. It's not like the people running the agency have never thought about them. There are a lot of political constraints about what they are allowed to do uh, without angering various members of Congress. There are many technical ways, and they do much more in terms of fraud and abuse detection now. There are units uh, in the agency and contracts that are let uh, to concentrate. They're just not as good as the private sector is. And sometimes it's because they don't have the real-time access to data that exists in Visa and MasterCard and American Express, where they can track at a moment in time whether or not this makes sense. Some of that is, will we get serious about putting in an infrastructure? But for this economist, the main problem is looking at the incentives and deciding whose money we think this is, and what we're going to do to try to get people to care more about what seem like obvious, bad ideas, fraudulent uh, activity. And can we do it without undoing other things that are important to us? Because the obvious way that many other countries that uh, Andy referenced keep prices low is they use administered pricing. That is, the government sets prices. That's what they pay, which as long as the United States is willing not to do that in the pharmaceutical area, allows a lot of other countries uh, to do that. In my view, it is much more risky to engage in administered pricing 
in the pharmaceutical area than it is in physician payment and hospitals because of the very long lead time and investment that gets involved. If you screw up when it comes to paying appropriate amounts for hospitals and physicians, access will get affected very quickly. If you do equally bad moves in the pharmaceutical area, given the average 10-year investment cycle, you won't see the implications of your mistakes nearly as quickly. Doesn't mean it can't be done, it just means it carries with it a higher risk. But we need to be careful when we think about why them and not us. It's because they engage in very aggressive pricing by the government as their strategy, in most cases, for keeping prices low. Seems to me to uh, say it's mildly would be an odd solution uh, to come out of the Cato Institute. Uh, but these are times when odd solutions pop up all over. OK, well, uh, thanks, everyone. Um, I'm going to start with a question, and then um, I'm going to open it up to uh, the audience if you have questions. Um, you know, I, I guess one thing that strikes me is whether we talk about a, a kind of consumery solution where people are paying out of their pockets or a, a kind of capitated solution, we have such high prices now. It's hard for me to see how you get from here to there. If you say, okay, you're going to have, you know, you use the Singapore solution, which you raised in your book, where people, um, you know, accumulate a savings account. I mean, if I walk through the door of a certain orthopedic hospital in New York for an outpatient visit, I've blown through $5,000 already, right? Likewise, how do you capitate a, figure out a capitated price for a system that's used to getting um, really insane, we all agree, insane amounts of money. I don't know. Well, I think you need to make a distinction when you talk about pricing uh, and spending. And that is, are you going to try to focus on the growth or are you going to try and focus on the absolute levels? It's easier, it's not easy, it's easier to put your attention on focusing on the growth. Sure of trying to change the incentives. You could try to focus on the absolute level to instead of having as high a cost, a price attached to these, we come not at the lowest prices that exist, but something 25, 30% lower. That will cause much more pain, much more dislocation, because it is going to mean lower reimbursements you know, it's nice if you think, oh, just those bad guys, profits, they'll get squeezed. And it's like, no, no, no. If most of the cost in healthcare is labor, the reimbursement for labor is going to have to be cut way back if you're going to actually make a move. So I tend to say, let's look at the incentives. Let's really focus on the increased spending going forward. We can't tolerate the rate we've had in the past. I think we need to be pretty gentle when it comes to the absolute level. I think the political pain would be unbearable. But, and David, or I want to hear, you know, but I, I guess I, I feel like at this point I'm talking for the patients. You know, we heard this week that a lot of people don't have $400 in savings. And yet, you know, a 20% copay of an observation stay is going to be five times that. Like, how do, we, how do we bridge that gap? I understand, like, when people say, oh, you know, 
what should we be spending on healthcare? I, my answer is always like, I just don't want it, you know, let's just stop growing. But we have to figure out a way to get from here to there. Um, so I, I want to start by agreeing with Gail that you could separately target the rate of growth versus the base level of spending and our compounded growth has over time given us a dramatically higher base level. Um, but, and I also want to agree with her that it's going to be politically gruesome to try and cram those prices down, which is precisely why we don't think that's going to work. Um, we think market entry uh, and reference pricing, that is, if your insurer says to you, you can go wherever you want, but if you go to anything that costs more than this, you're 100% exposed. And what you see, and there was a paper presented here uh, about a year ago and published in Health Affairs, you see as soon as you institute a kind of reference pricing model, um, which doesn't share the upside with the patient, right? It, it basically shares the downside with the patient, but not the upside of shopping. You immediately see providers start cutting their prices to get down to the level uh, that you've the buyer. And I'm fine. Insurer. I think I'm fine with those. And, and that, but that takes money not out of the rate of growth, but out of the base, um, and it does it seamlessly yeah. and automatically. And that's why one of the things was if you can't beat them, leave them. Right? If you are willing to travel. Um, which, and this dovetails with a point that Andy made, many people, I think, feel themselves captives. Yep. Um, they can't travel or their situation is such that they don't want to travel or they trust their local providers and it can be scary to go somewhere else. Um, but the difficulty is all of those things reinforce the selling power and that's why we are in the situation that we're in. So we're not going to easily solve the situation we're in by continuing to do the same things that we already are. And if we all say, but everyone's, like we're, we're talking to people with very different political views, yet reference pricing seems acceptable as a step to almost everyone. I mean, CalPERS did that, what, five years mm -hmm. ago? The California State employees. It was a great success. Why isn't everyone doing, why doesn't stuff that makes sense like that just travel like wildfire through the country? Andy. Well, look, I'm going to just say the radical statement. There's some ideas in your book that will work and some that won't, and we won't know until we try them. Uh, and, and, and in many respects, um, there's a lot of stuff we deeply believe that turns out uh, doesn't work the way we think it will, and there's a lot of stuff we think will never work that does. I think that's the power of working with states and working in states, whether it's at the all-payer model in Maryland, uh, whether it's reference pricing, uh, and then, look, finding what's work, what works, and then it's our job to figure out how to scale them. I will say there is, I mean, look, on, on the pharmaceutical side, people are paying attention. There's 163 bills in states right now and a waiver from Massachusetts with a Republican governor um, that is a pretty smart way to take on uh, prescri prescription drug costs and not feel powerless. Uh, so there are ideas out there of those 163. Are they all good? No, but some of them will be. The other thing I think it's important to know is there actually is somebody that's actually really good at managing healthcare costs if you incent them the right way. And that's the primary care physician in, a, in, a, in something like a Medicare Advantage kind of construct. When, when, a Medicare, when, a, when you tell a primary care physician that you've got full responsibility for a relationship with a patient, which by the way is why they went into medicine in many cases, because they want that responsibility to keep them healthy, then guess what? they go to the hospital like 30 to 40% less. Things that could be dealt with 
in lower cost settings are dealt with in lower cost settings. There are the best medical groups uh, do not send patients to high priced hospitals that don't have differentiated care. So you could try to educate every American about what's the difference between UCLA and Cedar Sinai and USC and each department and what their costs are and who commits fraud and who doesn't. Or a smart primary care doc who's been in the community for 20 years and has full responsibility will tend to know, if, particularly if they've got some sort of incentive like they do in Medicare Advantage, to gain share and the ability to keep people healthy. So I think we ought to be not you know, trying to you know, for, force fit whiteboard what could and would, should work. We should look at some things that do work. We should test some other things. And we should, we should be able to, to drive from there. And the good news is there are people that can do this. Although you need to decide at the end of the day, if people choose not to go that direction, is that OK? And Medicare is a good case in point that if they stay with a fee-for-service Medicare, even though they'll tend to use more services, they'll have to buy a supplemental policy which imposes additional cost on the base program. Is that OK or not? Generally, in this country, we will at most provide choices. But if people want to buy, take a bad choice, even if it imposes costs on the rest of us, we haven't tended to say no unless you're very poor. If you're in Medicaid, we say no a lot in terms of what your options are. If you're middle class or you're a senior on Medicare, we've been reluctant to do that for political reasons. Now, I'm just going to, um, if you have questions and answers, uh, sorry, if you have questions. Um, I, the answers would be better. The answers, the answers come from up here, OK? So um, um, we have mics in the audience. Please raise your hand. And um, I have a gazillion questions, but I'll, I'll defer. Um, and uh, let's go over here in the center of the front row. While, I'm set, while we're getting the mic to you, I'll just note that I am New to DC, but I'm the only one wearing capitals red this morning. So, uh, 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 Gerald Chandler here. Uh, suppose we had uh, lots of robots uh, putting people out of work and that the medical system was a bigger part of our economy. So, what would be wrong if we got to where 30% of our economy was the medical system? Why are we worrying that it's already 18%? Um, there, I don't think any of us uh, talked about what the appropriate percentage is. It's a question of whether or not you're getting value for the money spent. Uh, indirectly and directly, what uh, the authors uh, have raised, and uh, I uh, support, I think Andy does as well, is one of the problems in healthcare is people are frequently spending someone else's money because of third party payment. Uh, the people supplying services. Uh, have a pretty open sway about how it is they use other people's money. Uh, and the reason healthcare has been so different uh, are these driving forces. Tax laws encourage more insurance. People, once they're insured without a limit, that is without a spending limit attached uh, to many insurance or a very high-end spending limit, take the position, it's not my money. Uh, why should I care? Uh, and the people providing services most of the time will provide what they think are a good, appropriate set of services. But again, it's not their money unless it happens to be a Kaiser-type model or where there's a, a fixed budget. 
And so the incentives, if you're under fee-for-service, are if you do more, you will receive more money for the care that you're providing. And if you think there's a reasonable chance it might benefit your patient, uh, all the better. Uh, so the only reason to say, why would it be worse uh, as an aging, wealthy population uh, is that the concern we're not getting value for what we spend now at 18%. Hard to imagine the most likely response would be, oh, we're getting so much more value at 30%. Yeah, real, real quickly, we need productivity and wage growth to pay for our retirees. So that, that's, just, we just, that's just a simple math problem we have uh, with, the, with, with both the Medicare Trust Fund and any other kind of elements of, of care. So I think the answer probably is we just have to change the work that people do. So instead of nurses walking the halls, they should be visiting people in their homes and keeping them out of the hospital or working doing, or doing telemedicine or and I'm not going to list a litany of, of, of good ideas out there, but we just have to rethink how we get care to people. You know, we spend 1% of our GDP in the ICU. Just think about this. We spend 1% of our GDP hooking people up in, an, in a semi or unconscious state to tubes. That's not where we want to be spending 1% of our GDP. So two quick points. How many of you have a cell phone? I know many of you do because you've been looking at them while we've been talking, okay? Now, if I asked this question in 1985, none of you would have basically had a cell phone. What does that mean? It means spending on cell phones has gone through the roof, okay? It's skyrocketed far faster than the healthcare system did, and no one thinks that's a problem. Why? Because you're each individually spending your own money, and you're getting value from it. It's exactly Gail's point. Um, second is the issue is not strictly speaking, the percentage that we spend, um, it's not, and it's not just the value, it's the government is spending a large and growing share of its budget on health care, okay? And a former undersecretary of the Treasury said, think of the federal government as a large insurance company with a small sideline in national defense. What does that mean? It means we're crowding out spending on all of the other things that we might want to do, and we can respond to that by raising taxes or changing the way we pay for health care and how much we're willing to spend on health care. But the trade-offs are real both for individuals and also for us as a community slash through our government. And we are now scheduled uh, by 2030 uh, to be, if we continue as we are, to be spending the whole current federal budget amount on Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, interest on the debt, period. Comment on a few things. Like the, the, to me, the big difference with the, the, with cell phones is cell phones are better and cheaper, but healthcare costs have skyrocketed. But so health, that's that's, that's why. not quite fair a comparison because healthcare itself has gotten better in the aggregate in terms of providing care and comfort to an older population, whether or not a unit of care gets more or less expensive varies. There are some things that go up and some things go down. But you need to be careful about looking at total spending on health care versus the cost of a cell phone. Although I completely agree that when you're spending money out of your own pocket, you tend to spend it very differently. Well, but, but we don't have that. And I, I, I guess where I look is, and, and this is where I'm coming from, when I was a physician in 1994, I was treating patients with HIV AIDS in the New York City uh, emergency room. AZT, a drug came onto the market that changed their lives in a way that basically few drugs ever do. Instead of dying, people lived. 
And that drug was priced at $10,000 a year, $800 a month. That's what insulin costs for a lot of people now in this country. So where, you know, our notion of what's reasonable in healthcare has gone so through the roof, and partly, yes, because we're not paying, but we don't have that outrage. When AZT came on the market, everyone was, that's insane. No one, no drug should be that much. And now we look at CAR-T therapies and go, yeah, half a million, well, well it's really valuable. So I think, you know, part of, of, of this is how do we get, um, how do we get people to think about healthcare costs as their costs, not something that people are uh, paying out there? Um, and the only other thing before I take another question is, you know, I, I was a doctor and I, I would question whether doctors always order things. And I love doctors, I, you know, because they think it will benefit their patient. I think they, there are, there's a lot of why don't we just ordering of tests because why don't we just, if that, in, when I worked in an ER, if it popped up, um, you know, that MRI scan is going to be billed at $6,000. I would say, eh, not necessary. So I think, you know, to me, this issue of understanding prices, transparency in prices is crucial whatever system we, we end up going and Changing to. incentives would help too. Yes. Uh, someone else? Lou Gagliano, Coalition to Transform Advanced Care. The MACRA uh, rules that went into effect a number of years ago where the concentration was on quality has changed the way some insurance companies are, are sending patients and employers are requesting better care and they're asking their insurance providers to send their patients recovered lives to, to places where better care is given. So the value-based contracting question of incentives, the ACO trend to keep people healthier, aren't these solutions that will have over time a dramatic effect on healthcare growth? So uh, look, I think there are steps in the right direction. You know, I think we should think of these things, whether they're bundled payments or primary care medical homes or ACOs, uh, in many respects, they're change management tools for communities and health systems to begin this transition process towards something that will look a lot more like a fully capitated system. And we're blessed with 305 different communities in this country, and each of those communities is fairly unique in terms of its construct, in terms of its capability, in terms of how they pay for care. You know, so let's take two of them, Southern California, in Northern California, Southern California has independent primary care practices, dramatically lower um, admissions and readmissions to hospitals than Northern California, where the primary care practices are by and large owned by the hospital systems. So to some extent, you're, you, you, know, you will never make as much progress in a place where primary care docs view part of their job as an employee of the hospital. And so there are, there are supply side structural issues uh, that, that we have to but up against, but we have to move people, I think, more rapidly down a path where they could do the things that they know make sense. ACOs are a good concept if they are on the way to a more fully capitated system. Just as a by the by, ACOs do not actually save money on net at the present time. Uh, when you account for the uh, um, rewards that they pay out, uh, they're 
almost break even. But if it moves, helps get people who had not worked together organized, looking at a different set of systems and asking a different set of questions, it's moving them along a path that ultimately will be helpful. So I, I'm a big fan of federalism and experimentation. I'm less confident that I know a, a single right answer or a single right structure, uh, let alone to presume that it'll work for all of the different micro markets that we have uh, and adapt to changes over time. Uh, and so I think it's important for us to be flexible. Um, the challenge with you know, the integration question is unless you're going to go all the way to full capitation, fully integrated, there's lots of ways to collude um, and increase your market power and increase your billing without doing anything for patients. Extremely wise words. So I'll stop. I want to take a question towards the back. And in the meantime, uh, while, while, while here, this gentleman here, David, as a lawyer, I, you said you started writing this book about fraud and then it moved into a... So um, I'm always surprised as kind of a lay person that the stuff that goes on in our medical system, as a reporter, the answer you get when you say, why are you charging $120,000 when the hospital... The, the answer you get most commonly is it's legal. So why is some of this stuff legal? Why, is, why are bills that are so inaccurate legal? Um, why... Why does stuff that feels that isn't legal, by to the way. a lay person... That, that is not legal. But what you're citing is legal. But, but why, why um, you know, uh, saying that um, a, a hospital can, can um, tell uh, an, an insurer, oh, you can't, you have to send your lab test to us if you want to use our... That sounds like restraint of trade to me. So I'm going to spare you the... First of all, I'm a law professor. It's much okay. worse than being a lawyer. <laughs> um, but... Uh, uh, but um, why are they the, selling my bi my bills to collection before I've even resolved the bills? I mean that because they can. Okay. Um, and so I mean, there's a separate question about law and norms, right? So norms of what was acceptable behavior um, are an important thing in how we all get along with one another, right? We don't look to law to keep people from bumping into you on the sidewalk. Um, and in some parts of the country, it's expected that they'll bump into you on the sidewalk. Um, and in other parts, it's expected that they'll be polite to you and say hello, and it's quite rude not to. And anyway, nobody thinks the law is an appropriate solution for these things. Um, and, you know, if you talk to people about why are pharmaceutical prices going up, they'll say, well, we can. We get paid more, and the norms of an acceptable price have been shattered, right? Every new, every new price just resets the benchmark uh, against which you're doing things. Um, in terms of why isn't it illegal to um, tie one thing to another, that is to say, um, if you want us in your network, we, the hospital, you have to include all of our other hospitals. Okay, um, and the answer to that turns out to be very fact specific. Um, you have to have market power for there even to be a problem with what's called tying, um, and the precedents on that are not a slam dunk. Um, and so uh, people will behave very differently if you're a monopolist um, than if there are multiple providers. The difficulty is in many markets, we've seen such a high degree of consolidation you don't need to do tying. Every, everybody's part of a single family to begin with. Before profit hospital chain buys a hospital, it's not, a, it's not atypical for the insurance company the next year to see a 40 to 50% increase in the charges from that hospital that they've been doing business with, by the way, for decades. 
and have been, have been doing just fine. <clears throat> but, but essentially, they say, if you want to do business with one of us, you have to do business with all of us, and they ring the bell. Well, it's the other is why are hospitals uh, buying so many physician practices? It's because for the same service provided by a physician in an office is billed at a much lower rate than when that physician is, quote, unquote, even if they physically stay in their same office by the hospital, they can bill at a higher rate. Why is that? That's what the Medicare rules are. Could you change it? Yeah. Yes. Do you need legislation? Oh, you bet. Yeah. Yep. I agree with the conspiracy between hospitals and, doc and, and doctors, et cetera, but we're, we're a nation that's so nutritionally ignorant, seven out of 10 deaths in this nation are due to nutritional ignorance. We're biologically herbivores, stupidly thinking we're omnivores. Agriculture has changed more in my lifetime, I'm an Eisenhower baby, than the previous 12,000 years. Why, for the last decade, has there not been uh, preventative solutions, you know, other than Dean Ornish, uh, involved in the debates for uh, reducing health care costs, Re people, reversing people like, people type 2 like diabetes and heart disease with one, one dietary change? People like to talk about medical care. In fact, most people working, most people working in this no area okay. know that about 15% of deaths are caused by things directly related to the medical care system, and 85% are much more uh, globally, environmentally affected by lifestyle and behavior. People in the, this country would prefer to focus on those things that are medical care related rather than obesity or proper individual accountable behavior, et cetera. And I would say we have a great business model for treating things. We have a terror, we have no business model for preventing them. I, I agree there. Um, I think we have time. Okay, I think we have time for one more question. Is that, how are we doing? One more, okay. Um, gee, uh, yeah, this uh, woman here in the third row, sorry. <clears throat> Thank you. Uh, good morning, my name is Jan Bates. Um, I wanted to ask why $20,000 is too much to pay for a life-saving cure. It seems to me we pay $20,000 for tuition, more than $20,000 for a car, much, much more than $20,000 for a house. I mean, why, why are we so afraid of things that are really essential to, to our well-being? Depends whether it's a cure. So I mean. some, some things are essential and others are not. Um, some things have a value that dramatically exceeds uh, $20,000 and others don't. But the, the important point is the value that something creates is not necessarily the price at which it basically gets exchanged in the market. This is more econ speak than you want, but there's often huge consumer surplus. So antibiotics create huge societal value when they save a life, but nobody thinks that the result should be, please tender me 50% of your future earnings. Right. <laughs> Um, and the same applies to all sorts of things, right? The, the reason why it's at 20,000 is because we've got an open-ended reimbursement system that 
basically is willing to pay whatever the person who's sending in the bill is asking for. And so what I tell people, it's like if you went into the dean's office and he said to you, what do you want to get paid next year, David? And it didn't matter what number I told him, he'd pay me that. Well, over time, I would learn that I should ask for more money, okay? Now, my value is probably not exceeding, increasing at the same rate I would increase my demand. Um, and that's the central challenge here, is when everyone perceives they're spending someone else's money and there's open-ended reimbursement and the kinds of political constraints on doing sensible things, right? There are literally decades of reports that have been written by MedPAC and others that say, gee, we should fix this part of Medicare and Medicaid because it's not working. And Congress says, yeah, we're not interested. We just think the money train should keep going. That's the challenge, and that's why we're spending both at the level we are and the rate of increase that we see. Yeah, I, look, what you said is really important. We're a wealthy country. We can afford to provide people the care they need. We have to, but we have to make difficult choices and smart choices along the way. And so if there's a, there, I'll, this will take a real example. There's rheumatoid arthritis drug. It's not life-saving, but it's life-changing for sure. It costs tens of thousands of dollars. It works in 20% of people. We pay for it in 100% of people. I'm more than willing to pay for that drug for the one in five people it works for. I'm not very excited about paying for that drug in the four out of five people it doesn't work for. So there's just smarter ways of managing cures. And then you take the fact that most of the costs of drug increases are increases in cost of drugs that are not changing at all. They've already been on the market. They've already been through patent cycles. They, they bought, in fact, they bought more patent time you know that I mean, so says you. I mean, but the, but the re, the reality is no, nobody's been willing to stand up to that test and have that discussion. So th those all ought to be. Charlie Baker, governor of Massachusetts, says bring those facts to the table and then let's have a real conversation about what things are worth. Nobody seems to want to do that. I think are we? What? Okay. I think we're, we're, I'm, we're running up against time. I'm sorry, everyone, who I couldn't uh, ask. Um, we're going to take a 15-minute break now. Um, there's water and coffee available uh, in the Winter Garden, which is on the first floor, I'm learning. Um, and there are restrooms on this level. And then on that pedestrian note, um, thank you all for coming, and thanks for having me. Thank you.